Hi, everyone. Before we start the show, I just wanted to update you on where I am and what I'm doing. I'm in Australia for a few weeks. Why am I in Australia? <laughs> well, if you listen to the show, you know that my wife, Kayla, got into medical school at McMaster University last year, and that's why we moved to Hamilton. One of the perks of McMaster Med School, other than the whole becoming a doctor thing, is that you get opportunities to do medical electives around the world. Kayla saw that Australia was on the list and decided to do an elective there for a month. Plus, we get a week of vacation at the end. I couldn't do the whole month, but I joined her halfway through. And I figured if she's going to be at work all day, I should do something productive. Like interview some Australians for the podcast. I'm very interested in having a diverse group of guests on this show. Whether it be diversity of age, gender, race and ethnicity, sexual orientation, ability and disability, personality, socioeconomic status, education level, or life experience. It's important to me that my guests aren't simply a reflection of the white, straight, cisgender male that I am. If you look at the 42 episodes so far, you'll see that there's some diversity, but I have a long way to go before I reach my goal. So when I started my Australian guest research and found some amazing women in the space, I decided my series would be the women of Australian personal finance. I'm excited about this series, which will be airing in September of 2018. This is also the last week to enter my July book giveaway. Five lucky people will win a signed copy of Cashflow Cookbook by Gord Stein who is my guest on episode 36. To enter, head over to bowhumphreys.com slash giveaway. This is The Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. Ian Clark was the Chief Financial Officer, or CFO, at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, or MLSE, for 26 and a half years, and as of 2017 is the current CFO of the Greater Toronto Airports Authority, or the GTAA. As a CFO, he manages the finances of corporations, but is corporate finance really that different from personal finance? As it turns out, they're pretty much the same except for the human emotions that are involved in personal finance. Emotional spending and emotional investing can lead a rational person to spend money they don't have or gamble money they can't afford to lose. But often the way out of a bad financial situation is to put the emotions aside and treat our personal finances like a business. In a business, you're accountable for your financial actions, as you should be in your personal life. But what happens instead is that you might decide you want to buy something before you calculate whether you can afford it. It's this kind of behavior, encouraged and promoted by credit card companies, that leads people into real financial trouble. So have a listen to Ian's personal finance story and his experience as a CFO. Hopefully you will see the value in his rational approach to money management and life in general. I used to go down to the uh, corner store. I lived in uh, Pierrefonds in Montreal and we used to ride our bikes down to St. Genevieve through through fields and oh awesome and then go to the store go to the uh, yeah in those days was what we used to say the deponier and yeah. <laughs> um, and go and buy our we used to buy our orange crush soft drink and buy chips and gum and candy and so you know you start off with an allowance 
and then you get a chance to spend it. Do you remember how much your first allowance was? It might have been a couple of bucks, you know, every two weeks or something, five bucks every yeah. two weeks or something. So you go down, you buy it. And then as you, you know, as you grow, you're, you know, you play sports. And the worst thing for me used to be buying hockey sticks, not the... Uh, like not big the, ones or little ones? No, I mean, no, the big hockey sticks no, to, to play, play, hockey, to play with. hockey with. Yeah. And I used to like taking slap shots, so you'd break them. Uh, they used to be, a, a, my old sticks used to be Canadians. They was a, it was a Canadian type of stick, as I recall. And then you got, you know, then the Sherwoods and all those things came out. But they were all wooden sticks. And so, so breakable, yeah, breakable, and you're saving up all your money for. for well, you're these you're going around, and you're you know your dad wanted you to play hockey, but you kept breaking, so you go and buy a new one. Then you played road hockey with it. Yeah, which you know all on that the pavement stuff. that'll that'll ruin it. Right. So between that and baseball mitts and a bat, you know, you had to try to use your money wisely, and then you know, sweet talk your mom because your dad wouldn't give it to you um, <laughs> to be able to get some other stuff. So. You know, the lessons of trying to, um, you know, take your money and make it stretch um, started young. And then, you know, as uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. And so as you need more money, you start doing odd jobs in a neighborhood. That's so, right. What was available you know, I, to you? I'd cut grass. If a neighbor needed help lifting rocks, putting in a fence post or whatever it was. A couple of bucks shoveling. here and there. Yeah. You just sort you of do like that. bit by bit. Did you learn something about like how uh, all this adds up? Well, yeah, because you, you know, I had, uh, my dad had a snow blower and so you'd go out and you nice. do someone's snow and you get some bucks and it gave you some money to spend um, the way you want it. Did you have to give your dad a little commission every no, time? No, 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 no. Just make <laughs> sure I, was, I did all the chores around the house. That's right. Okay. Exactly. Because may, maybe at this point you're not getting allowance anymore. You still did. You still yeah, get it. Yeah, my parents weren't as formal with allowances. Yeah. Okay. You know, as, as it went on, it was more about hey, you know, you we have an obligation at home to to help and. I used to uh, vacuum the house uh, once a week, and people would come by on a Saturday, and they'd hear music blaring or something, and I couldn't hear the doorbell because the music's blaring. Yeah. And I'm just You're I'm doing it as quick as I can. You're doing it, <laughs> and just to, just to skip ahead for a sec, what is your policy on allowance or what what was it when you're you uh, how many you have kids yeah i had i have two boys and uh, then they're they're, they're, they're growing now. up they're out of the house they're out of the house but yeah. when they were growing up what how did you apply the same concept you know what we weren't formal allowance either but we we tried to make sure they understood the value of a dollar mm -hmm. we weren't as fortunate as as i wanted to be in terms of making them work as hard as I did for the dollar. So, you know, it's the old story of, you know, I used to walk to, I used to walk to school barefoot uphill in a snowstorm. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted my kids to do that, but you know, it didn't happen. No. <laughs> and, um, but, um, you know, they, they learned uh, the value of a dollar by us saying no, or being able to say, Hey, you've got some money because your grandmother would give you money. Family members would give you money. You know, you encourage them to save sure, and then build it up to what they want. And, you know, so so one of my sons was at an early age, uh, not early age, but invested in Under Armour and did some stuff like that really? uh, with some of his money. So, okay. you, you know, you quickly get them to open up an account, the bank. One of the things that my parents did for me and we did for our kids is we said, hey, get a credit card, establish a credit yeah. rating early How on. How early can you get it in, in Canada? Uh, I thought you could get it at 18. Yeah. Um, so not still it, the case? Yeah. yeah. So, so get it, you know, get it early. And establish, you know, 
you know, put two dollars on and pay it back or whatever yeah. it is, right? Just to say you have it because you never know. Because people get it and they get it thrown upon them, and if they're not taught, like it's it's a great thing to teach your kids like what it actually means. Because if they just get the offer from university, then they're like extra money, right? That's what they think when they look at this. Like, yeah. oh, free credit cards for everybody, and if nobody taught them they won't understand that it's like the, in, the interest impacts. And, oh, man, it's just ridiculous. Well, you know, for us, probably more discipline, partially more discipline came in for them when they went, both went away to the same university. We weren't lucky enough for, for them to live in the same building. But, <laughs> um, you know, so as you'd say, okay, well, I'm paying your rent to begin, you know, I'm paying the rent every month. Sure. You're going to make some of your summer money stretch. Mm -hmm. So that could be your beer drinking money. Yeah. But then, you know, we would say, okay, here's your living expense and here's the amount that goes into your account at the beginning of the month. So that was also a, later on in life, another way of another lesson of how to budget and yeah. how to, how to use your cash wisely. And you can teach kids how to do this without making them go too much without. You don't have to hold like back the necessities to, for them to be able to learn like, well, the motivation is the, the beer money. They, yeah. they don't, maybe don't even care if they like don't, don't pay rent or they live in a crappy place. Like that's more your comfort. Like I want them to live in a nice place. And they're like, all I care about is, you know, having fun with my friends and I'll work for that. Okay. Let's jump back to you then. Your, your first job, uh, like real job, like in high school, I'm guessing you, you got a job. Yeah. So towards the end did of- Did you do Sejep? Were you still in Montreal? Yeah. did Sejep. Interesting. So I worked at Bell Canada in the summers. Okay. Yeah. what did you do? So, so I had several jobs. So one, I, my dad early on got me, he, he retired as a school principal, but he had different positions that through the education process in the West Island of Montreal and he also lectured at night at Concordia so what he would do is he'd get me I used to mark some exams when he was at Concordia nice then I would also clean schools out and so he got me a job working for their maintenance when people went on vacation. How are you qualified to mark exams? Are you just looking at a, a key, like, and making sure they match? Well, up? I was I was pretty good at math. Okay, but and so, so did you I say what he was teaching? Uh, did I miss that? What? Uh, he was he was a math professor. Okay, math professor, awesome. Right. This and he is, wrote two this math books. Advanced though, like I'm guessing calculus. Is derivatives well, it was it was, it was at Concordia, and it was more for see, for people going back to school. Oh, okay, great. And but a high level, so of practical math. stuff though. Practical, yeah. well, yeah, and so. I'd um, I'd go back and, and mark some some exams and look at formulas and, wow. and do that. And like I said, then then he got me jobs uh, cleaning. So you know I had to clean toilets and do all that stuff to make money. Sure. And then you know I was lucky enough to spend one summer working at Bell Canada as an accounts payable clerk, basically. Ah, learn um, a lot doing AP. And then finally they got me a job more in their operating line where. Uh, they, in their billings department, and I would have to collate reports that it came out with carbon, and then and also work with the billing, cutting up the uh, computer paper, and then it would go into the mail sorting machines, and then everybody would get a bill by mail. In those okay. days, you had punch cards that had to be matched with paper. Can you explain uh, two words? Collate, <laughs> because nobody knows what paper is anymore. Yeah. And car and carbon, I can imagine what you're so, talking about. Okay, so what happens is in the old days with dot matrix printers, yeah, you'd have uh, several copies. 
if you wanted to have four copies of a report, there was carbon there's paper that. in between. Yeah, okay, yeah. And so when they punched the first, when they punched and printed the first page, copies would go to the very last page. Because dot matrix printers were actually physically hitting, hitting it as yes. opposed to laser, which is just throwing stuff on an ink, which is just throwing stuff on the page. The dot matrix, it's like a, it's like a modern typewriter. Correct. I guess, right? Yeah. Exactly. So the carbon. Okay. Yeah. So ahead. then, what happened then is you had to then separate the reports. Mm -hmm. So they were perforated to stay together. So then you cut the perforations with this machine, and then it would separate, and you had to put it on rollers. And so the the roller would accumulate the carbon copies the carbon between each report and then the report would fall down into three or four or five stacks depending how many copies so at the end of the day the you know you'd have five reports and then you'd have these roll four rolls of carbon that you'd have to throw out and a little bit of trivia that's the origin of cc on emails means yeah. carbon copy. I mean, yeah, exactly. And the, it's like kind of like, if, if you don't know, this is probably blowing your mind right now. <laughs> and I was allergic to carbon. So I was, oh, I was working at working night shift doing, oh, come this, on. doing this stuff. And my hands, you know, would be getting covered in this, in, in, in the carbon, right? Oh, my God. Because it comes off. So that was one job. And then there was another machine that used to take a printout of the Bell invoices. And what would happen is they were once again attached perforated style mm -hmm. and the bursting machine would separate it and cut it down the middle and then you'd have a stack and then these stacks would then go to the mail room and they would put it on top of you know in one pile and then you'd have the actual cards they used to have printed punch cards and it would be matched electronically because they're a computer system and then it would go into an envelope and then the envelope would be sealed, and then it would be mailed out. And that's how, you know, so we were in the, we were in the mail room, was, and the machines were loud, and you had senior operators. Machines would break down. <laughs> they would get jams. Wow. You know, then you'd have to reprint. So it was, those were days. I spent... Uh, so what year? What year is this? This is probably 1982. Okay. Oh, I spent probably three summers down there. So you're learning about business. This is like... This is preparing you for everything in business well, administratively. It, pre it prepared me to say that I want to be a white collar worker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> no, right. Cleaning toilets and doing that. Um, I mean, it was yeah. it was almost equivalent to working in a factory because you were working in a factory, a paper yeah. factory, almost exactly. making all this stuff, sorting and and was it was it, it was monotonous to you then? I mean, other than the allergies. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, you'd work night shift, and you know, sometimes. Some billing cycles were a little bit less busy, so you try to, you know, if you knew your boss, you might get out early. Sure. I used to like to go and play golf immediately after my shift, and then I'd think I'd sleep in the afternoon. And so, you know, it was, it was good money, and so you took the money, you worked it. Uh, you did what you had to do to put yourself through university. So that's why you're doing this. Yeah, this is the motivation. Put, yeah. So what did your parents say about, like, helping you with the university? Was it not on the table? No, I think they helped me with the first payment and then, hey, you know, go and help yourself. Yeah. And that was it. So that, that's I would, it, right? Yeah. yeah. And you, you, you just alluded, did you pay for your kid's school or just the living costs or how did that work? Uh, they were more fortunate. We paid for their university. Yeah. And what, what do you think? What's your opinion on those two? Because people are making that decision right now, right? Like, do I either let them go do their own student loans or maybe if they're in a less fortunate position to get OSAP themselves or... 
do we do RESPs? Did you do RESPs? Yes, we did RESPs. Okay, yeah. Uh, you know, they even had one of their uncles contribute to their RESPs. That's awesome. Um, you know, listen, I, I, I thought, you know, we grew up in a family where education was always number one. Mm-hmm. And so my wife and I are, are of the same mind. So we always said, we're putting you through your first degree. Okay. And that, that was just yeah. our obligation. That sure. was our point. So our thing was is to help them graduate. And when they graduate, that was one of our proudest moments. Amazing. And so we were willing to pay for that. Now, just to push back on this, what if they would have said, I don't want to go to school? Did, did that conversation ever come up? Like, maybe I want to do this or that? No, I don't think our kids had it. But if they did, then there there was a, a growth aspect to that, that they'd have to start doing some sure. things. So if you're going to sure. work, yeah. if you're living at home, you're paying us rent. Yep. Or you can move out and, and see what the world's like. But you're going to pay us rent. You're not going to live in yeah. our house for free at some point. If you're working, you're working. Yeah. And whatever it is, you're going to be a productive member of society. That's all we wanted. So I'm not saying that not having a university degree is bad or good. It's just that, you know, if, if you're going to go to university, then you're going to pass and you're going to do your best mm-hmm. and we're going to hold you accountable for the money we're spending. And if you're not going to university, you're going to work and you're going to realize, you know, you're going to have your budget and you're going to pay and, yeah. be, and be treated like a working individual in yeah. society. Yeah, exactly. And so you obviously did this and your motivation to go was well were your parents uh recommending you go to university or was it just you didn't want to do the blue collar stuff uh well one i didn't want to do the blue collar stuff because i'd worked at bell i saw some older guys mm-hmm. dragging themselves sure. in working in monotonous work i was fortunate enough through my church to be exposed to a, a chartered accountant and so when i went to cjep at first I, you know, my dad wanted me to be a doctor. I was very poor at sciences. So I tried the first semester uh, taking biology and stuff, and I was very weak at it. And I was fortunate enough that two teachers passed me barely through the skin of my nose. Mm. And then I ran the next semester to the other campus and took finance. Nice. And by taking finance courses, and accounting courses and math courses, they just were more interesting to me. And that started my journey towards becoming a CA. Yeah. So do you remember what was so interesting? Like, because, hey, accounting is boring for a lot of people, right? And not for us, though. <laughs> Why do we like numbers so much? What is it? Uh, well, because it was, I don't know, I just found numbers came easier. And then as you start to get into analysis of numbers, mm-hmm. they tell stories. Yeah. Right. So in, in my job today, what's interesting is that numbers tell stories and it allows me to look and say, OK, what's the story behind this? What's the reason? And then you can sometimes use the past to predict the future. Now, you got to stress it. you got to flex it. You got to think about what could change. But numbers tell a story of the past and can can give you some indication into the future. So trending, regression analysis. So I find that fascinating. And then what you can do with the numbers and help business, right? Because mm. at the end of the day, you run a business. What do you, why are you in business? Okay, you're in business because there's a need for what your product is or Solving your service. Solving a problem of some kind, yeah. Right. But you're also in it. A business doesn't last unless it generates cash flow. This is right? why we always have jobs, right? Because and you know it's confounding to a lot of people, right? They might have the ideas, but some people see it like you do, and some people just see it as I I just can't process this. Or what do you think? They just don't 
given enough credit? What's your opinion on what, those? What, for who, numbers? You mean for people who are like, I don't know anything about the numbers, and th- are they just not making an effort? What is it? Well, some people, you know, maybe in school were afraid of math, didn't like math, and mm. they don't really want to do it. But I think what, what eventually happens is you become a successful uh, business person or in business. You not only get to understand what numbers, but you also get to understand sometimes you understand HR and people and, mm-hmm. and issues around HR. You have to understand limited uh, legal. You get you get professional advisors you surround yourself with professional advisors but it's important for leaders and managers to be well-rounded and be able to understand when they need help that's right right. and and where to ask right because it's i'm not an expert in, in in at law but if i'm doing an agreement with someone on a lease i know my bounds yeah and so i know okay this is where i'm going to go to get this bit of advice this is where i'm going to go to to get that bit of advice Likewise, someone who is not financially bent but as a leader might be in sales or in marketing. Mm-hmm. They have to understand. Okay, when do I want to go and see the C- CFO or someone in finance? That's right, and that that's so. We, it's just important to surround yourself like specialization. You you would recommend yeah. that, right? And that's like that's what an organization. Well, really separate is. you, right? How yeah. do you how do you make yourself value added? Yeah. as an individual, right? Yeah. So one is what's your what's your point of difference? Yeah. What do you bring? What's your what's your value? add yeah. to the company to your department to a process but as a cfo like you do kind of have to understand the numbers around everything i remember the the meetings at mlse we're sitting there's what 25 of us in in a room yeah everybody is representing a different part of the company but you're the one who kind of needs to understand well you're you have to understand enough to understand the explanation from them is that like what's your level of understanding like how deep down do you have to go like about operations or or live entertainment for that matter right so in in those days you know working at mlsc it was important to have knowledge of business so you could be an advisor to the business Mm -hmm. units right when you look at a cfo and being in finance it's not just about saying, okay, last month you made, you know, two hundred thousand dollars in your department. Yeah. You know, your analysis, okay, last month you made two hundred thousand dollars in your in your department. Your profit margin went from fifty points down to forty five percent. Now, oh wow, that should be alarming. Yeah. How did you lose five points of margin? So you ask these questions. So now, so so what we do is, okay, well, how do we dig into that? Yeah. What information is there? What happens to your sales mix? Yeah. Right? Did you sell more of a higher profit or you sell more of a lower profit margin? Why did that happen? Is it because you didn't have supply? You didn't have your goods at your warehouse and in your stands to sell? Or is it because the customer, their demand and what they want to change? Or Or is your price wrong? Whatever. Yeah, something happened in the environment or the economy. Like so many things factored, but you... You don't have to know what that is. You just have to be able to ask the question. And so you're, you're like you said, it's like a puzzle. You want to be able to go in there and have the discussion with the business. So first, you got to give the the business enough indicators and enough um, numbers so you can say, okay, here's the story of the theme we're seeing. Now then, you sit down with the business 
and then you say, okay, let's look at why it's happened. How did it happen? Mm -hmm. What's the story behind it? That's where it's fun because now you're solving something. Now you're, you're trying to improve something. You're trying to sometimes change behaviors or a process, yeah. whatever. Or you might say, hey, we need to drop this product. Yeah, exactly. I'm listening to everything you're saying and I'm applying it to somebody's personal life. If you can do all this with a business, why do people have so much trouble doing it with their own lives, right? Like, so as an example, I, I'm spending more than I make somehow. Nobody's analyzing to figure out why. Well, I think, you know, to a certain extent, I think that business makes you be disciplined. Mm. I think when you get to an individual, uh, individuals have different needs. Mm. And sometimes some individuals are trying to impress a girlfriend. Sometimes some individuals are trying to impress a friend. Sometimes they get themselves into a mental state where they need something that gratifies them. Mm -hmm. And so their, in, their, their emphasis is on gratification as opposed to sitting back and saying, I've got to tailor my gratification to my budget, to my budget wherewithal, right? Yeah. And, and so because, because it becomes personal. And so we all prioritize different things in our life. That's the key, isn't it? It's, it's business is business. And I mean, we're not supposed to bring the emotions in, but you, it's hard to do that with your personal life. And people think that, they, that that's too rigid or something, right? But when it comes to your finances, it's kind of a good idea. Absolutely. I think that you have to take that approach. And that's why, you know, you, know, you, you would advise people to say, okay, Liz, how much money do you bring in? Yeah. What are your mandatory bills? If you have a mortgage on a house, you've got to pay the mortgage on the house. Then you've got to pay all the utilities. You can't not pay utilities. That's right. Okay. Then you decide, okay, well, how much do you want to spend on internet and TV if you're buying TV or phone or your cell phone? So you want to figure out how much you need, how much you can do in that. Then you said, well, sorry, before you do that, you also talk about how much money you need to eat, right? Yeah. So you got to buy All of food. your necessities. All yeah. your necessities. Hopefully you make more money than your necessities. So yeah. that's a good that's thing. That's a tough situation because yeah. we, we do talk about that. And, and whenever I'm talking about like, don't spend more than you make, I'm not talking about people who can't afford to, to live. I'm talking about buying the big screen TV, right? Because it's really tough to address. You have to earn more money. That's kind of the only solution <laughs> right. to that. Exactly. exactly. But if it's a matter of now you've covered all the necessities and what do you have left over, then yeah, then what would you do there? So, so then, then, then you start to say, okay, what are the other things that I'd like to buy, right? Because yeah. also in your necessities is a basic wear of clothing. Yeah. So then, so then you sit there and say, okay, well, what else do I want to spend money on, right? And depending on where you are in your life, you might say, okay, do I want to play hockey? So, you know, so, or do I want to play golf? Do I, what kind of books or magazines do I like to read? What hobbies I have. Yeah, everything. Um, okay, or I like to travel. Yeah. So I want to go away once a year. Experiences. Okay? So if I have, if I have $2,000, I can probably drive somewhere nice in the States yeah. and have a good time. Sure. I can't fly to Europe no. and, and, and stay in a hotel for that. So, so I think what you have to then do is you have to be realistic with your dollars and set your expectation. And then with that level of ex expectation, set your priorities. You have to know what's really important to you. And, you, you know, we never have enough money to spend on everything we want. I, rich people do, but the average person doesn't. So yeah. now it becomes a prioritization. If I do this, I don't do that. If I do this, I don't do that. And you can't always get what you want, 
as the Rolling Stones said, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> but if you try sometimes, you get what you need, right? Yeah. I don't know if I'll have to pay copyright for, for saying I know, that. for saying But yeah. uh, I might cut this out. But, it, and it's funny, like, because people have to listen to you as CFO. If you say, yeah, you know, you made a good case for what this, uh, this cost, this thing that you want to buy, but we can't afford that this year, you know, or you didn't do, you didn't make the best case for it. Somebody else beat you out, right? And I just feel like we all need our own personal CFO. You're right. I mean, that's exactly what we do in business, right? You, you, when you look at business, you say, I have limited resources. That's people, time, and money. Mm-hmm. And then you take those resources and you allocate them to the areas that are going to benefit you, benefit the company the most. And you can define benefit as sales or income. You can define benefits as employee morale, engagement. You can define it in many ways, customer satisfaction. But the whole idea is you're always allocating those resources with your end goal in mind. So you're right. If you're CFO of your own, your own personal finances, then you're sitting there and saying, okay, like I said, I only have 100%. If I spend... 60%, I got to pay taxes, So, but I spend my, my take-home. Yeah, that's tough. 100% yeah. of, of, of my take-home, and then I say if I have 60% going to mandatory expenses, I've got 40% left. Then in that 40%, what's important? Now, there's a lot of things to balance, right? Because it's not, it's not just fun about today and the extra things for today, yeah. but then it's about thinking about your future and what happens if you live to 85 and you stop working when you're 65 years old. What are you doing about those extra 20 years when you're not making money, right? So you've got to weigh that. I'm reading a book right now that's uh, advice on retirement because mm-hmm. I'm closer to that, that retirement age. And, and so they try to tell you that sometimes they, they still believe people are putting away too much for retirement because what happens is you tend to spend more between 65 to 75. And then after you hit 75, a lot of people, their health declines, they don't travel as much. There's a little bit of a lull. And then in your last couple of years, if you're not healthy, you can spend a lot of money on health. That's right. But there is that little sort of dip. And so some people uh, look at it and say, well, it's going to be even throughout. Um, and you don't travel as much or yeah. whatever. So anyway, so... It, it, does, it, it is a benefit to have uh, some financial planning software that allows for the variations instead of just like, I'm going to need you know $80,000 a year until I die. Because you're right. I mean, but it does allow for the health, unexpected health care costs that you mentioned uh, that we should all kind of plan for, even though we hope that we don't need right. that. But it can be pretty costly, right? If you don't have any money, and a government's not going to take care of that. Yeah, no, and we're we're lucky. We live in we live in Canada where there is some help, some. but there's some stuff that you have to pay for. Like right? if you need assisted living and, yes, and that kind of exactly. stuff. Exactly. And if you or, or if you actually have you know serious health problems, um, yeah, we you know we have our general health problems taken care of. But yeah, some people are just you know living at home on nothing, and they need help, but they can't afford it, right? So, okay, let's go back to your story. So you finished university 
uh, with what uh, what degree? So I got a BCom uh, major in accounting, minor in finance. Okay, so you you knew accounting. You were looking at this stuff. You're like you knew from. Uh, well, can you briefly explain what CEGEP is? We talked about it a couple of times. Yeah. So in, in Quebec, uh, you go through. You go to grade eleven. You spend two years intermediary college, basically, and and you spend two years there. And then you go to three years of university to get your bachelor's degree. Okay, great. So it's it's like sort of, it's almost equivalent to other provinces, but it almost seems like you got more education. Yeah. Just yeah. a little bit more, right? Yeah. Was, yeah. It, was it painful? Um, <laughs> you know, we all, you know, there comes a point where you all say, let's get out there and make some money. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. But, um, you know, like everything else, we're always impatient. So sometimes you do have to go slow and learn and pay your dues. So where where did you start? Did you start in auditing? Yeah. So I I graduated from Concordia, and then I started uh, a year later at KPMG in Toronto. Okay. Fortunate enough to uh, work on uh, a large audit group at KPMG downtown Toronto, and so we had some big clients and uh, a variety of clients. So that gave me some good exposure to entertainment, to sports, to communication company, to a book publisher, and to retailer. So as an, as a, an auditor, you have to understand these businesses, or you are understanding them as you're in them? How does it work? Well, you're learning about them. I, yeah. you know, I'm not going to fool myself coming out of university that I understood, yeah, okay. or I knew those businesses. Sure. So you get in there, and as you're auditing, um, auditing's about asking questions. Mm-hmm. It's about probing. I always say to people as an auditor, you're lucky because you get to meet executives. And so I used to take the time to, whenever I could, to sit down and talk to, not just ask the audit questions, but every once in a while spend some time when they when the person had some time and talk about their past, talk about how they got to where they got to. Hmm. And like we're doing that. right now. Exactly. You early podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then use that. Right. And use that knowledge and think about it. Right. And then you're always hmm. thinking like I, I when, when I joined the firm, I said, hey, I want to be a partner, you know, and then a few years later, I said, maybe not. So what do I want to do? What clients would I want to work for? What industries would I want to work? And so then you start to learn the industry for a lot of uh, uh, chart accounts. Is it kind of like you're you're on a job interview like <laughs> sort of thing? Because I mean, that happened to you, but I know it happens more, to others. It, yeah. used to, it, it used to be that way more so in the past, because now you've got if you audit a public company. There is some rules about going to a client and going to that company. I see. You have to wait and you can't go. So that's a problem. Now, if you're out in private companies, it happens all the time. Sure. Where you can end up, you know, you, you, you develop a good relationship with uh, the CFO or even the CEO. And then all of a sudden the CFO goes and either the CFO says, I don't have one, someone internal. So, hey, here's a guy who understands the business night might be good. Or on the other hand, the CEO says, hey, yeah, you know what, I'll give this person a try. And so you're always, you know, I, I think good advice for people is you're always interviewing for your next job, right? You're yeah. always on display for that next job. You don't know mate, where it is, so you might as well do a great job, the one you're in, and be ready. And uh, just to contrast that to, say, like LinkedIn today, is it way easier or harder to get people's attention? I think it, you know, you've got to you've got to try approach and you've got to, try to, um, you know, you knock at many doors. How do you, how do you open it? You know, what's your point of differentiation? What's your, what's your two liner that has someone say, yeah, it'd be interesting to meet that person, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and so that's, that's what it's about. And, um, you know, whether you call it networking through LinkedIn or networking in person, 
where you're asking the person, you know, can I take you out for a coffee Mm -hmm. and let's have a little chat. And, and I think that, you know, you'd be surprised from the in-person meetings, how sometimes how easy that can be, because I think there's a lot of people that recognize that along their path, there were people that took time to talk to them. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of people who don't mind giving back. Are we, uh, are we getting lazy? Like, would do you get, people sending you like just emails or messages on LinkedIn say like love to work at uh, GTAA <laughs> well and then you don't know them and it's just like <laughs> does it ever happen like or just do you have an experience of people getting lazier and, and less face to face you know I think it was easier when I was in sports and sports business was you know everybody wants to get into yeah it did you downtown. get it a lot there yeah I yeah. think, you know, coming out here, someone's got to say, oh, I got to get out to the airport and I got to try to make it happen. Good point. So it took a know, while so, to find this place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so they, they'll do that. I also, you know, at the end of the day, it depends on the job. So if I, if you say, listen, I want to be CFO somewhere, is it 5% of jobs out there? Is it 1% of jobs? And then, you know, how many people really want it? So if let's say it's 1% of jobs, less than 1% of jobs, 5% want it, then of that 5%, how hard are they willing to work for it? And it, it just becomes that, right? It, it becomes about your desire and what motivates you. Some people get it early. Some people want it early. What I mean, when I say get it, they they get what they want. They, they're motivated. And then they think about how they're going to go about getting it. They start to develop their brand. They start to differentiate themselves. And as I said to you earlier, you know, part of the advice I give to people is, you know, conduct yourself and perform for your next job and think at that level. Now, it's easier said than done, but you want to put yourself in a learning environment. You want to be a, a student of leadership your whole life and a teacher of leadership your whole life. What are you doing? You're always trying to improve. So we talk about companies. Once again, the same analogy. We're talking about, you know, worrying about finances in business Mm -hmm. and then personal finance. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same thing for companies. You know, companies have to innovate. They can't get complacent. They've got to be constantly improving. They've got to be constantly mindful and hearing what their customers are saying. It's the same for the individual. Yeah. If you're not moving forward, if you're not improving yourself, are you losing ground at your company? Are you not contributing to the next water level that that company needs you to perform at. Are you getting too comfortable, say, doing the same thing because it's it's safe and it's easy? And then you wonder at a certain point why you feel a little bit unhappy. Exactly. Because people, you know, I've been speaking to various people who either had some success early and then they got, they thought money was the thing and it turns out money's not the thing. And the thing that is actually more important is you know, uh, discipline and, and having a challenge and that, and everybody kind of sees money as the goal and, and it's, it's wrong, isn't it? Yeah. You've got to figure out, it's not easy. I'm not a philosopher, but you've got to figure out what's important to you. Mm -hmm. What are the things that are going to drive you? What, what satisfies you? And, and, and sometimes it takes people a while to figure that out. Mm -hmm. It's not always that easy because yeah, you can start off chasing money. But you you went straight into the gardens after this KPMG job. Am I wrong? Yeah. So how did you got your opportunity early? Well, I got my opportunity by, by, by good fortune. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I was on the audit 
Um, I was the audit manager. The number one guy was leaving, the treasurer was leaving, and they needed someone to come in, so they asked the firm if they can borrow me. So they borrowed me from the firm. I was on contract. Okay. Two months later, then they offered me the job. Nice. So, you know, so one, I think I auditioned while I was the audit manager. Yeah. And then I got to audition for two months and build a rapport with the act with the CEO at that time, who was a 73-year-old um, sheet metal man, okay, a yeah. gracious gentleman by the name of Don Giffen. And, okay. and it was that working with him and, you know, sitting down at the end of the day, having a drink and talking about the day mm-hmm. that we developed a relationship. And then in developing that relationship, he says, would you want to come and work here? And I go, okay, yeah. And he says, well, go home, write up your contract. Okay. And I went home and did that, you know? And so, so, so the idea is, is that I was fortunate, but I also, I think, you know, you need luck. And then when luck happens or yeah. opportunity strikes, you got to be prepared. I think you prepare for luck. Then luck happens. Yeah. Then you walk through. You have to be open. Season. You have to be ready for it. Right. Yeah. You, you do. Well, I think somebody says to me, you do your, your best at everything. So that when the opportunity comes, you're already that there. You're doing. You're at your best, right. and so someone will see your best, and and you don't know when that's going to be, and and then it was up to you though to keep your job, right? Exactly. And to to keep doing things to make to, to make people uh, want you to move up in the company, and eventually, how long did it take to become CFO? So, so basically, I was always the number one finance person. Okay, but I yeah. started off as controller, and then I went to VP, then I went to, yeah, you know, senior VP, EVP. But there was always the number one finance person. Our com- our business got more sophisticated; it grew, and so titles changed. But y- you know, you're absolutely right. Is that along the way, I had seven bosses, right? Mm-hmm. And so, as each of those bosses came in, you know, they they were hired for a reason. And so you had to learn how to establish, you had to establish new relationships. You had to show them that you could be beneficial because when you work with a CEO, it is a partnership. Yeah. Right? And so you've got to be valued. You've got to be value in that relationship. Hey, they could have a favorite CFO that they have from the Absolutely. previous place, right? You could have been at risk every time, not because of your lack of talent, but just because of their preference. So right. you have to show, you have to prove yourself every time. And it, it sounds challenging. So you, uh, how long were you CFO of MLC? 26 and a half years. 26 and a half years. That's a lot. A lot happened in that time. I was there for six of those years. That, and I feel like those were like the, the big six years, though. This is like Maple, you built Maple Leaf Square and TF, bought TFC and helped build BMO Field. And I'm missing a couple other things, I'm sure. But those, those are the those Rico are the main Coliseum, things. Rico yes, was yeah. built in that time, and uh, other maybe a practice facility or, yes. or, or others. But during that time, I, I I feel it's important to mention this. You did a lot of awesome community charity work. Can we talk about that? Yeah. So uh, one day I was uh, watching um, NFL football, one of my favorite things to do uh, on weekends, and I was watching the NFL, and I saw Terry Bradshaw interview a lady in New Orleans after. Katrina, mm-hmm. Hurricane Katrina, and they were showing water levels in where the water level got up to in a home, and they showed the root hole in the roof. And it just struck me it would be nice to go down there, and I'm not very handy, but to get a group of people and go down there, because they, they were asking for money, and go down there and work and give some money. 
And so it, it just resonated with me, and it took me about two weeks. I said, you know, it would be interesting to see if I could get people to go down. And I phoned Robert Perrault at uh, Air Canada Jets. He was flying out our, he was flying our teams. Mm-hmm. We had negotiated a charter deal with them to fly our teams to the games. And I said to him, if I get a bunch of people, will you give me a good deal to fly us down to New Orleans? He says, yeah. and I told him why. He says, yeah, great cause, Ian. Okay. Sure. So then I drafted up an email and a PowerPoint presentation was going to send it to 25 people. I couldn't press the go button because I just was really? afraid to ask people. Well, and, and why is that? Because I'm sure uh, they've asked you for things. No, in I the just, past. But, but it's not in me. I'm not a fundraiser. Mm, yeah. Uh, I don't view myself as a salesman. You're sure. always selling, but I don't view myself as a salesman. Okay. Yeah. So then I was talking to another friend and she convinced me to send it out. And so I did. By the time I got back to work on the Monday, 23 people had replied. Mm. And they either said, I'm going or I'm giving you money. So the first year, you know, we had, I think, 26 volunteers went down. And, you know, on our biggest year was 58 people. So we did five missions to to New Orleans. What what year did it start? I think I went in 2009, maybe on the second year. Yeah, I think you probably went second. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so we did five missions to New Orleans, two to Jamaica, one to Kenya, uh, one to Haiti, and then we did, uh, our last one was in Canada, where we covered off Calgary and Slave Lake. So through Amazing. that process, we ended up raising over a million dollars, gave it away, and then we also built 18 homes and three schools. And I got to fly in an Air Canada charter jet. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Let's not forget about that. Not only were these awesome fundraisers, but they were a lot of fun, and they were helping. It was so awesome to just go down and learn. I I know how to build a closet. Probably don't remember now, but I did. I did it, and it's just such a great it wasn't all MLSC people, right? Oh, it no, was we like got maybe, people from all walks maybe of life. quarter or half or something of yeah. the people probably, just because it would be people within the company who want to go. A lot of people from outside the company give money to and, and within. But it was just such a great team building thing. And to be able to do that, plus raise money, and yeah, and you, you were just on the fence about even getting Sorry. this started. No, listen, it, you know, sometimes, and I've said that to people, I said, when they talk about leadership, they say, don't, you, you can't have fear. And I've always had a fear of failure. Mm. And so that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to send that out. Cause what happened if no one responded or if I yeah. didn't get enough people? So that was a good eye opener. And like you said, it was such a great experience The people that went on that to watch someone start off and they can't hammer in a nail. And then by the third day, they're just going crazy um, there were life-changing experiences for people because you actually got to meet the families yeah. that were going to live in the homes. Exactly. And, and we went into some of the worst-hit areas of New Orleans and saw it. They felt, you know, they felt enriched. By the end, the last day when we finished, you felt rich. You felt you accomplished something. And then those people have stayed in touch. So many of those mm-hmm. people have stayed in touch. We've had a, actually had one couple get married. So out of that, they met on that. And so it was, yeah. it's, it's quite... It was quite. Wait, you're talking about James and Sarah. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> I was that. I was yeah, my trip. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. So you know, quite remarkable. We had we had fathers who brought daughters. I got my own two sons at different points, and so it was quite remarkable. And 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 the sharing and the caring and the giving back. And the mayor of New Orleans uh, gave you the key to the city. Yeah. No. We gave that it. Was gave nice. it, to it was. It was really nice. And. Um, 
you know, some memories that you just won't forget. You know, as they truly say, sometimes, you know, you drop that pebble into the lake and it ripples and it becomes bigger and bigger. And, and that's what happened there. So now that's still going on. One of the guys who it went is. with us, uh, you know, uh, Bear. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, Mike he's Fra- running it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mike Ferriman, he's now doing it. He goes back to Kenya. He's gone again. Awesome. So he's continued that. So the legacy lives on, which is really nice to see. That's so cool. And the spirit of giving. Uh, something I'm proud of and something that, you know, uh, my assistant, Rita, and I and other people were just uh, really contributed strongly to. So it was great. This wouldn't have happened without a network. Well, it's a network, but it was also, most importantly, it was the values of the company we Mm. worked for. And so, you know, I know you interviewed Richard Petty, who was a CEO Mm -hmm. during that tenure, and I spent 14 years with Richard. And Richard was, you know, he he was a a great student and teacher of leadership and of vision and values. You know, I'm a great believer in values, and I was lucky enough, and I say you should always work for a company that shares your values. Mm -hmm. And And out of that, that that, that allowed us, that allowed me to do that. 13 years ago, uh, almost, November, so 12 and a half years ago, I sat and presented the vision and values to you <laughs> in an interview at MLSC. Yeah, exactly. And I just, in a way, it seems like forever ago and it's, it feels like yesterday. You know, I said I was a musician and you just started laughing. <laughs> you were just like, this is amazing, right? We need more, <laughs> more musicians. We have a band. You oh, got to be in the band. I brag to this day. <laughs> I, I was talking to someone just uh, within the last week and I said, you know, we it was amazing because we would have our Christmas parties at the Reservoir Lounge, mm-hmm. and we'd have six to seven musicians, and we have our own finance. Plus, you know, MLSC had the play to win. But I said, when you look at the the play to win, it was mostly fine. It was a lot of finance. It really people. was, yeah. Between Wayne, yourself, um, we and, had and Warren. If you, Warren, if he was I, part well, Warren of, was uh, IT, FIT, was finance, yeah, right? Yeah. And then we had uh, another guy who could sing. Noel, Noel, Noel yeah. yeah, Noel. So we had. You know, we had some great musicians and we'd have a great, we, we threw our own party. It was our own concert. It was great. There's a lot of things that keep people at a company and the vision and values are a big thing in community. Like there's just so many things at MLSE, right? That, that were, that were good. And, you know, people who won't be named step in <laughs> and started running things. Um, they just don't have the same focus. And I think the leadership really changes the company. Listen, there's there's a school of thought out there to run a business that it starts with leadership and ends with leadership. Now, everybody has a different definition of leadership. Okay, yeah. But you also, if you look at companies that are successful and they go through, no company ever stays at the same level, the same water level. You go through ups and downs, Richard Sigmoid curve, you, you would remember it. At different points, you need different types of leadership. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you're trying to start a company from the ground and build it, you know, maybe an entrepreneur takes you to a certain level. And then at some point, you need processes, systems, you need some discipline. Then you need, sometimes when the company's in trouble, you need a shakeup artist. Mm-hmm. And so you, okay. you hire a shakeup artist. Sure. But you know, but but most people, I think there's more empirical evidence that says if you've got strong vision and values, you can handle good times and bad times better. And you have more unification, more cohesion, you have better engagement. And once you have better engagement, you generally have better performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what? how do you do that? And so, you know, that was uh, Richard's philosophy. We had a, a big group of believers at the at the executive team. Yeah. And then we were able to roll that out. And the, and the company embraced it. Everybody knew our values and we could, you know, and, and we lived them. 
uh, we unleashed people, we motivated them, we rewarded them to live, to, to, to conduct and achieve our goals, but do it that in a way that was consistent with our values. You know, what about your values in, in your personal life? Did they always align with, uh, with your work and, like, say, your current work now? I believe so. I think I grew up in a family where it was about hard work, treat people the way you wanted to be treated, about respect for yeah. others, accepting people who they are, um, mm-hmm. getting to know them, not making prejudgments. Yeah, that's important. And then learning. So my dad was an educator. My yeah. mother was a learner in Barbados before she came to Canada. So the key thing was is that finding myself... Um, and I coached at an early at an early age. I coached baseball. I took a team down to Boston when I was sixteen. Mm. So I think that my my values were very much rooted in that. I used to think a lot about communism and about sharing and socialism and, and taking care of those less fortunate. Yeah. And then that was hammered home in KPMG, where I was encouraged to be the treasurer of the Second Mile Club and be involved in giving back, Second Mile Club of Toronto. And then just continued with MLSC. I just remember no one ever had anything bad to say about about you. Like it was always like, you know, yeah, I got to do that. You know, Ian is right. Like he knows what he's talking about. There, there is always such a positive thing with you and with Kevin and... You know, with, with everybody who was at the top of, of the finance team, and I know it's not always like that, and I hope everybody realized how fortunate they were to be able to experience that. What you're doing now, right, I think that you have relationships and then you build relationships. And how you treat people, how you deal with people, life is about relationships. Why are certain management teams successful? Why are certain mm-hmm. sports teams successful? Because they gel. Yeah. Uh, you got people that come from different walks of life, different perspectives how do you take those perspectives how do you listen so if you walk into a room and you're going to a budget session you don't walk in with all the answers Mm -hmm. you walk in trying to find solutions you walk in trying to find better solutions you walk in trying to grow you should walk in also with a common goal and when you walk in with a common goal and a common and common set of values good things happen and that's that was the approach right at mlse was pretty simple is Yes, we know we've got to hit a certain bottom line. We also want to grow because growth is fun. Yeah. You know, growth is fun. Winning is fun, right? Whether and, and, yeah. and, and if you're in a normal business that's not sports, how do you define winning? Growth, bottom line growth, accomplishment, customer service moving up, it's employee true. morale yeah, going up. Feedback of some kind. Right, yeah. right. All those things, right? The difference in sports is you win each day and it's in your it's in the paper next that, morning. Yeah. Right. So that's a different aspect of it. But that's how you that's how you can view growth and, and winning. And so that's the approach that I've I've always taken is um, you know, we did a lot of winning in MLSC off our playing fields. Yeah. And late now they're winning on their playing fields. Yeah, interesting. Some of those seeds were planted long ago, but they're winning now. And and so we we, we always wanted to win. And I think every corporation wants to win. Whether you want to be you want to be number one in the marketplace. Do you want to be number three in the marketplace? Yeah. In, in your business? No, you want to be number one. <laughs> yeah, if you're getting if you're getting in there. And uh, yeah, I mean I really think like all this stuff that we learn, like it's just it's so applicable um, to just your everyday life. It's like, yeah, grow, win, network, like get your get your wins, get your personal wins. You know, you don't just float by, right? And then so every like so many people are just floating. You're right. I think that what we talked about is, you know, we've talked now in two areas how business and personal life can mirror each other. It's the same thing. So what do su- successful companies have or products have? They have a strong brand. Mm-hmm. 
right? They have a strong brand. So what's your brand? Yeah. How are you branding yourself? How are you branding your individual? Okay. So then that's that. What do you define as winning? So what do you define? What are your, what are the corporation's values? What are your values? You, you can just start to apply a lot of great business practice to, to yourself. Now, as I said, there is emotion, right? And mm. in business, you're not supposed to have emotion. It does so come up, though. That, that, it does come up. We all yeah. have our moments. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that. Yeah. But, but you also, at the same point in your personal life, is how do you take that emotion and sit back and do that? And so I, I mm-hmm. always encourage people to talk to different people. Talk to someone who's not in the business. Talk to someone yeah. who maybe doesn't know anything about business uh, or about yourself. And, and just learn and 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 but understand yourself perspective and that's, and, and yeah that's different perspectives oh yeah it's also important well this was pretty awesome to come and talk to you Ian. i'm glad that you uh you had the time and you're still a cfo which uh, i feel like you're always gonna be until you're not until you're not working i've always known you as that and it just kind of fits so well no thank you it's uh great to see what you're doing and i'm lucky i i've been able to spend a lot of my life doing stuff that i enjoy and i love and I can be passionate about. And I think that my advice to anybody out there is to find your passion. Because mm-hmm. uh, then it's not work. Because yeah. you do spend more time at work than you do at home and with loved ones. So you might as well make it fun. That's right. All right. Thanks so much. All the Ian. best. Thank you. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean a lot to me and it only takes a few seconds. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Personal Finance Show. Next week, my guest will be Leanna Hawkins, founder and president of Blackhawk Financial and author of the new book, Young, Fun, and Financially Free.